Jesus, we thank you for the group of people that we get to uh, be around and call our church. We thank you for the ways that you've blessed us, for the fact that we, um, we do have this building that we can come and worship in, that we can team up to be able to fund ministries and to be able to do the things that you've called us to do. We thank you for the, like Christmas at the warehouse and planning to be there and planning to go into our community and do things differently than maybe we've done them in the past. And we ask at the end of the year that you would help us to understand what it means for us to be faithful givers. That we would process what we would give this month, what we would give uh, through the rest of the year, and what that means for us. And we ask that um, overall you would be in and through all the things that we do so that our finances are just taken care of and we can rest in you. Um, we just ask that you would move in our hearts so that we would worship you um, fully and completely with every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you just fell asleep because of the boring budget conversation, wake back up, okay? Let's talk about Christmas, all right? So our Christmas series this year is called Twas the Night Before Christmas, all right? So you guys know the story, right? Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a... Okay, you're kind of awake again. All right, good. I was just making sure. So here's the thing about that story. That is not far off from what life was like as we step from the Old Testament into the New Testament and start the Christmas story. So there was actually 400 years of silence from God from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New. Just to put that in perspective, right, that's longer than our nation has been around. So the Israelites go all of this time where God seemingly is completely quiet, right? All was quiet, no, no one was stirring, nothing like that. And so they step into a time then when Jesus is born where everything just kind of explodes and right arose such a clatter, right? All of a sudden, things start to explode, things happen, and the beginning of his, or history starts to change forever. And so what we're going to do as part of this Christmas season is we're actually going to back up a little bit. We're going to go through some of the Old Testament narrative and look at what led to that moment where everything changed. And we're going to look through different prophecies and different parts of the story beforehand as we get excited and ready to celebrate what happens with Jesus being born at the beginning of the New Testament. So our conversation today is called The Curse of Desire. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 in verses 15 to 16. As always, you are welcome to follow along in your own Bible or you can scan the QR code uh, on the back of the Next Steps card and you can go to the follow along page. You'll get all the notes, all the verses. You can submit a question or prayer request right there. So in Genesis 2 verses 15 to 16, this is how it starts. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, verse 17, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. So God, we get this beginning set up, right? God and Adam in the garden, all's good. He can eat any tree, literally any tree he wants. Like you see fruit, you go eat it, except for one. And God gives him this warning. If you eat that one, just that one, you will die. Right? Now, parents, when you give your kids one rule, what do they do? They break that one rule, right? You could tell them, you could you give them all the things. You can tell them, right? You can do this, you can do that, you can do all this stuff, right? Just don't do this one thing. That's exactly what you fixate on. We were like that too as kids, right? So all of us, we just, th this is like foreshadowing. Like all of us who understand ourselves and our children should have just been like, well, this is, this is going to not end well. So verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Then Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
So I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Verse 20, he gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. Verses 20 and 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, at last the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Verses 24 and 25, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So we get the first Two people, right? Adam and Eve are now on the scene. They're still good to go in the garden, right? Everything's fine. They can still eat from every tree that they want except for the one, and their relationship with God is perfect. And what we see in this ver- or in these verses is that they lived in perfect harmony. They had perfect harmony between God and man. There was, there was no problem at all. Like, it, this is hard for us to understand, but there was no sickness. There was no death. There was no pain. There was no, nothing, right? We've been going through this season of just everybody's sick, right? Everybody's sick with something. It just kind of keeps circling around, circling around. Like not a sniffle, okay? Everything was exactly the way it should. And they had perfect harmony between God and man. They could just talk to God. He would walk with them. Everything was perfectly fine. But we know that's not the way the story stays though, right? This was the way it was supposed to be. This was why God created us so he could be in community with us. But we remember that one rule that God gave them. And as we fast forward to chapter 3, that one rule is going to come into focus. So in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Now this is a stupid question. Okay? Why is it a stupid question? Because he says, Did they not eat, Can they not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, what else would they eat? So he already starts off in this weird space where he's kind of making Eve question what's going on. So why is he even asking us this question? Verses 2 and 3. Of course we may eat of the fruit. So she realizes a stupid question too, right? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat of it or touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, we, sometimes people focus on that idea that Eve even talks about not touching it. She, this kind of shows us, though, that she understood the, some of the gravity of the situation. Like, like, you're just not supposed to go near it. Just stay away from it. This is safe. But then the serpent kind of works her over a little bit, and we'll see what happens. So verse 4 and 5 says, You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here the serpent tells one truth and one lie. He tells the lie that he says, you won't die. Well, that's a lie, right? Because God already said, if you eat it, you're going to die. That was a lie. But the truth was, he says, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. That was true. So remember, at this moment, they don't know what evil is. Evil is a foreign concept. There was no nightly news where all the bad stuff happened, right? This was all just good. 
And so he introduces this idea of evil. He says, if, you, if you're like God, then you'll understand evil. Verse 6, it says, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Verse 7, at that moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So everything changes in that moment, right? Everything was fine. They, they had the perfect life. This was how God meant it to be, in communion with one another. No bad things happening. They were, they were good to go. And then they decide what? They decide they want to know what evil is. And the moment they take that bite, everything changes. And the reality that they knew all of a sudden changed and became very, very different. And immediately it says that they felt shame. Shame is a very interesting topic and a very interesting feeling. We've all felt that way, right? There's, there's been times where we've done something or we've said something or we've interacted in a certain way, and we look back and we go, oh no, what did I do? And so shame, I would say it this way, right? Shame arrives when actual reality falls short of our desired reality. So we have an idea of what we want to be, who we want to be, what we want to do, right? And when that doesn't come true, sometimes there's shame in that. Maybe you had a grade you really wanted to make. You thought at the beginning of the semester, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do well. I'm going to get at least, like for me, it was always a B average. Maybe for you, it was an A average, right? You wanted to get there. And then the end of this trimester comes or the end of semester comes, and then there's the grade and you didn't make it. And maybe you felt shame for that. Maybe you had this idea of like, I was, you're going to be a great husband or a great dad or a great mom or a great wife or whatever it is or a great kid. And you want to be able to figure out that relationship and you want to show up in those ways. And all of a sudden what you did didn't match what your goal was. And in that moment, you felt shame. It's because what we desired, what we had, what was true, what we wanted to be true, didn't match up with actually what was reality. And when that happens, when we realize what we've done, shame can show up. And here's what shame does. Shame is disrupted harmony. And God and Adam and Eve had that perfect harmony with one another for that amount of time before sin. And then all of a sudden, sin entered the world, and there was disrupted harmony. Now, this time of year, sometimes we get into, uh, there's, there's obligations that we have to fulfill, right? There's certain things we have to do, and there's certain things we're invited to that we have to go to, okay? Some people really enjoy some of these obligations, and some people really don't enjoy some of these obligations, Okay? One of the things that, people are going to judge me for this, one of the things that I don't love is going to little kid concerts, okay? I didn't like them when I was a kid. Like, I would fight my parents. I'm like, I do not have to go to, they admit, they, like, they, there was a dress code, so I had to dress up, and I had to go sit, and I'm not huge on singing, and like, whatever. But, like, when you go to a little kid concert, like, I'm talking elementary school, middle school, right? And they, they make them sing. And then there's a bunch of kids, they handed a tuba six months ago, and then they say, here, now play tuba in front of everybody. Like, we do it because we say it's cute, right? But we don't show up to those experiences and go, this is going to be awesome, right? You show up to a middle school concert or you go to the orchestra in Philadelphia, very different expectations, right? And you know, I know, at some point, the kid who played the tuba for six months so far is going to play the wrong thing. And the person playing the violin is going to play the wrong thing. Or if you were like me, you're going to start to sing at the wrong time, 
which I did, and I was very embarrassed, right? Everybody else is ready to sing, and I start singing, it's too loud. Nope, not the right time to sing, Corey. And so, like, those kinds of things happen, and we get to those moments, and there's disrupted harmony, and we smile, and we, we laugh, or we, not meanly, but, like, we go, oh, that was cute, right? We say it's cute, because we understand, but we get that when we step into that moment, there's not going to be all the harmonies working together all the time. In fact, if you went to one of those concerts, and it all did work, you would talk about that later. You would be like, wow, they were actually really good, right? That would be the conversation. We get when there's disrupted harmony, and in certain settings, we will look at that and go, oh, well, we just kind of expected it. Like, we know they're not going to be perfect. We know the situation. It's okay. But really, when disrupted harmony shows up in an area where there's supposed to be harmony, now that's a problem. If you went to a concert, and it was supposed to be perfect, and it was the orchestra, and the tuba player went off of the wrong key or something like that, that would be very noticeable. And this was the problem for Adam and Eve. All of a sudden their reality didn't match up with what it was supposed to be. And we still feel the repercussions of this today. We understand that life is disrupted harmony. We didn't have to, like, we don't have to have the conversation and go, this is what good is and this is what evil is. We all know what evil is. We get that. And so when we look at that, we go, okay, we see the problem that has arisen from Genesis chapter 3. I want to fast forward a little bit. Um, God has a conversation. He shows up in the garden. Adam and Eve hide. Then they, have, they come in and they realize there's a conversation happening. God now hands out kind of the consequences for what happened. And so in verse 13, or sorry, verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. Verse 15 And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and their offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And verse 17. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you, and all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And so all parties involved in this sin have consequences. The serpent gets to crawl on his belly forever. Ladies, you end up pain and childbearing. And men, we try and scratch out an existence or scratch out a living from the earth. Remember, in the garden, everything just grew just happened like they didn't have to go and like plant the seeds and everything like there was just fruit on the trees now they had to go cultivate it they had to do some work that was involved there right but it just wasn't it wasn't as though the ground was fighting against them but we know now like there's times where the ground fights again you don't get rainfall you don't get whatever you need like it's going to be a struggle to be able to get what we need to get and the tension we feel in life is the disrupted harmony created in the garden. This is very real to us today. This is not something that we don't get, especially with this ground conversation like Lancaster County. We get it. And this is the struggle, this disrupted harmony that has continued through time and that we still experience today, even down to things like sickness and death and struggle and frustration between... I mean, even think about relationally. Relationally, Adam and Eve had no struggles with one another. And then all of a sudden, right, there's the conversation of what he, sh- he said and she said and this and that and like this wife you gave me, right? Adam says that. We didn't read it, but he says it. And all of a sudden, there's relational problems. We all experience this today, and it's all because of this, this disrupted harmony 
that was created in the garden. And there's a piece of this that's very interesting. If we go back to verse 15 real quick, he says, And I will cause hostility. This is, again, he's still speaking of the serpent. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, what's he talking about? Sometimes when we look at this verse, we immediately jump to Jesus. And there's some merit to that, where, where this is a, an example of the struggle of good and evil, and the serpent or Satan represented by the serpent will have the ability to cause pain to Jesus, right? That he's going to die, but that Jesus, the Messiah, would deliver the final blow when he rises again, and he will end evil and sin for all, at least the impact of evil and sin for those that follow Jesus. And there's some merit to that, but also understand that this is a commentary on the struggle that's going to continue until Jesus finishes it. That there would be back and forth between good and evil. This is a strike back and forth, right? This is somebody's going to get a win, then the other side's going to get a win. And there's this battle that's going to go on. And it's partially the internal battle that we feel between what we know we should do and what we don't do. Or what we know we shouldn't do and what we do. And this back and forth between the offspring of the serpent of evil and the offspring of the woman, man. And so how did we get to this point? How do Adam and Eve, how do we find ourselves in this place where this struggle and this disharmony continues to be something that we experience? And this is why I call it the curse of desire. I think there's two things that happened that they desired that became this curse. And the first thing is that they wanted to be like God. Remember, the serpent says, the, the truth he told, right, was you will be like God, what? Knowing good and evil. So they wanted to be like him. And the second thing is, they wanted to be autonomous from God. In that moment, what they wanted was, they, they wanted to make sure that God didn't have to make all the decisions for them. They wanted to make that decision, right? God's telling me I have to be one thing. God's telling me I'm only supposed to know certain things. God's telling me this is where I'm supposed to be. No, I, I want to I listen to the serpent for a while, right? I want to decide whether I know this or not. I'm going I'm to try this fruit. We, we struggle with the same stuff. Maybe I should talk about me. I struggle with the same stuff. I want to be like God. I want to be able to make the decisions. I want to be able to autonomously, apart from God, say, you know what, maybe I just want to go down that path for a while and just see what happens. And so we get this curse of desire where what we want does not match up with what God has told us is true and right. And that disrupts the harmony that we have with God. When we look at God and say, I don't want to trust you, I, I don't want to do what you say. I don't want to listen to what you've told me. I want to decide for me. Then we disrupt the harmony that exists between us and God. And again, in verses uh, 4 and 5 of Genesis 3, right, the serpent says, You won't die. Reply to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Listen, I, I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again. So maybe you've heard it and you're like, Corey, stop saying this. But if we want to be like God, if we think we can take the place of God, then we should just be God. Like the point of understanding and knowing who God is, is to say there is someone who understands, knows, created, sustains, is almighty, all-powerful, that's outside of us that we submit to and say, I trust you because I know me. Like that's the point of God. And so when we step in these places and we start making judgments saying, oh, I, I could do better, or I understand more, or I want to, we're moving ourselves into the place of God and we don't deserve to be there. 
And here's the other thing, right? The desire to be something you are not will always leave you less fulfilled. Our role is not to be God. Our role is to be Corey, right? Your role is to be you. And when we step out of that role, when we try and be something that we're not, we will be less fulfilled. Now, I don't want to go too far into this conversation because I don't want it to get too crazy. But here's the thing, right? We are watching people make decisions to be something they were not created to be. And we are deciding at times in culture to say, I have the right to decide I am something that I was not created to be. And the results of that, if we study it out, is more depression and more anxiety and more suicide and all the kinds of things that come with that. When we are finding our our value and our worth in who we were created to be and the person we were created to serve, we will be fulfilled. But too often we try and move ourselves to a place that we're not. And we were, this is true, right? We were created to live under God's authority and in community. That's what we were created to be. And even when we cycle back, just think about God and Adam and Eve for a minute, right? God creates them. They're under God's authority. That's where they were meant to be. And then what was the next level? They were in community with one another. Adam and Eve have community with each other. They have community with God. And then God says, right, be fruitful and multiply. Like, create more community so there would be more people. We're supposed to live under God's authority and in community. That's the very basic framework of who we're called to be and what God has asked us to do. And when we step outside of that, we step into unhealthy places and we are less fulfilled than we would be if we live in that framework that God gave us. Fast forward a little bit in Genesis 3. This is God's response to what happens, right? So Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take from the fruit of the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. We forget this verse sometimes. This is a big deal. Because what happens is, now that they're in a sinful state, if they go back to the tree of life and they eat it, they're going to be stuck there forever. And there would be no death, which would release their soul to be in community with God again. They'd be stuck living forever in a helpless state. And you and I would never be able to go back and be in true community with God because we'd be stuck this way. And so God says, oh no, what do we do? And so verse 23, it says, so the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And verse 24, and sending them out, the Lord stationed a mighty cherubim at the east garden, garden of Eden, east of the gate of the Garden of Eden, sorry. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is one of these things I nerd out on as a pastor, okay? Because then you fast forward and you think about the temple and the separation between the people and the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. Do you know what was on the curtain? A sword, a flaming sword. Why? Because it was a reminder all the way back to this moment that that sin is what caused us to have to be separated from God. And so when they came into the temple in ancient times, right, they would come in and they'd see this giant curtain and they'd go, there's the flaming sword. That's right, Genesis 3. I can't be with God because my sin prevents me from being in his presence. That was the reminder. Now, spoiler alert, what happens when Jesus dies? That curtain rips because then it's no longer a problem because Jesus paid the price for it. So here's what God does, right? God immediately sets out to save us from ourselves. Even though they broke the one rule they weren't supposed to break. 
And that one rule was literally a slap in the face to God because he knew their decision was, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to be disobedient, and I want to be like you. One of the immediate things, steps he takes is to save them from themselves in this moment. And he does this, why? He temporarily separated them to be eternally restored to him. So for this amount of time, he says, I need you to get out. I need you to not be here so that you don't get stuck this way. And my plan that he's already setting into motion where Jesus would show up and he would be the answer to our sin so that that could actually happen and that we could be eternally restored later on. As much as we look at this, and I'm sure at the moment, right, Adam and Eve looked at this and went, oh, like just more shame, more frustration. They, they get to step out of this perfectness and out of their relationship, the perfect relationship with God that they had. And they have to do this work and they have to have the consequences of what they did and all this frustration. And there's probably bickering on the way out, right? If you're married, you know that would happen. Like you're on the way out, like, why'd you do that, right? You know, like you're getting at each other. And yet God's answer was just go for now because eventually you'll see that I'm going to work this all out. I want to go back for just a second to Genesis 2.23. When God creates Eve, Adam gets so excited. This is very cool. He says, at last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. He's so excited because this was different, right? She's beautiful and she's just like him. Like the dog was cool. This is way cooler, right? Like I get to have someone who's just like me, my companion that will understand me and is like me and we can have conversations together and we can do life together and all this exciting stuff. Why? Because she was in the flesh. She wasn't just an animal. She was someone that looked like him and she was an image bearer of God. When we fast forward to John 1, verse 14, this is what it says, right? And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Listen, this is the difference between what we believe and every other religion in the world. That God, even though this happened, right? Everybody, every religion has an answer or attempted answer at why sin is a problem and why bad things happen. Every religion has a way to get back to God. But here's what they don't have. They don't have God becoming flesh to dwell amongst us to be the person who would pay for our sins. And the excitement that Adam shows for Eve should be the excitement that we show when we understand who Jesus was. That there's a God who is still 100% God, but he looked 100% like us. Like he wanted to know us. He wanted to know what it was to be us. He wanted to know what it meant to be born and to feel what we feel and to experience what it meant to eat a physical meal and to then actually die a physical death. Like to that point, God said, I will come and be in the flesh for you. And what we celebrate this season is that Jesus arrives in the flesh to restore the harmony between God and man. All that stuff that happened in the garden thousands of years ago, Jesus comes and says, I'll restore that harmony. That goal where we can be in community under God's headship and live in community with him. Again, even though it was ruined by sin. And so here's the first question that I want to ask us as we step into this Christmas season. There's a ton going on, right? 
all kinds of schedules. We've been giving you dates and events and things galore, and I'm sure everybody's doing that to you, right? There's got to be that space where we also pause and say, what is God telling me? What is God doing in me? What does he want me to understand? And through all the noise, here's the question I want you to ask starting this week. Will you allow Jesus to restore the harmony in your relationship with God? Like in a room this size and and whoever might be watching online or watching later or listening later, like there's, I'm sure, people that are connected to this conversation that are saying, my relationship with God right now is not harmonious. Like I'm frustrated. I'm sure God's frustrated. Maybe you feel some sort of shame. Maybe there's anger in there. Like there's things going on where we would just say, my, I don't think if we took a poll, everybody in this room would be like, yeah, my relationship with God is this, is just completely harmonious and everything is great, Right? So how do we get back to that place? How will you allow Jesus to restore the harmony of your relationship with God? Here's three questions I want you to ask as we process this, okay? Number one, are you living in shame? Do you feel, when I talked about shame, right, the, the fact where the actual reality doesn't match up with our desired reality, maybe that hit really hard. And here's what I want to say. If you are living in shame, I get that. That might be very real and very true. But Jesus died to take that away. Like when Jesus showed up to restore that harmony, it was to take away the shame that Adam and Eve brought into the world and that we even bring into the world on our own. I get it. When we do something and it's not right and we react negatively or whatever, we're going to feel that shame in the moment. But when we know Jesus, we can let that go. There might be steps we need to take, apologize, recognize, take the consequences, right? Whatever that may be. But Jesus died for that sin too. And when we hold on to shame, we kind of say to Jesus, you're not allowed to have mine. Like when you keep that and you say, I'm just going to feel this and, and no one can stop me. We're, we're stopping Jesus from taking that shame that he died for. And so we can hand that over and just go, I, I'm not going to feel the same. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to do whatever it needs to be. But I'm going to set that aside. Because if we hold on to shame, it disrupts the harmony in our relationship with Jesus. Here's the second question. Are you living under God's authority? If you're not living under God's authority, there can't be harmony with him. There can't be. Because he's called us to follow him. And so when we say no, or we say I'm going to make my own decisions, or we say I'm not going to be there, I'd be where you want me to be, that's a problem. So you have to think about, I have to think about, are the decisions I'm making is the way that I'm living actually honoring to God? Like is that the goal of what I do? Because if not, I'm going to, hurt the harmony between my in my relationship with God. And here's the third question. Do you pursue community with him? And in community with him, I mean community with one another as well. If we were created to live in community with one another and community with God. And if we don't pursue that, it's going to disrupt harmony, right? When you don't pursue community with your best friend or with your spouse or with the people that you care about, or if you're the kid in the classroom who just sits in the corner and never talks to anybody, your relationships are not in harmony, right? We have to actually invest in that desire to pursue community with him. And so if we don't do that, it's going to disrupt our harmony. But the goal that Jesus died for is to restore the harmony. Now, we're also looking forward to perfect harmony, right? We're going to get there. But these things can be done here. And we can live in harmony with Jesus. And our relationship with God can be restored because he came at Christmas to pay for our shame.
So I want us to understand what that means. I want us to feel at harmony with God as we go through the Christmas season. This is a fun season to be a part of. And when we're even more in harmony with God in our relationship, when we're seeking to honor him and love him and follow him and be in community with him, that makes this Christmas season even better. Let's pray. God, we're so excited to celebrate uh, this time of year. And I know that there are certain aspects of it that can get difficult, that can be frustrating, um, that can be cumbersome. But overall, when we look around and we get to experience all the fun stuff we do and we get to see the beautiful lights and have the parties and the time off and all of that kind of stuff, we're, we're thankful that we get to celebrate this season. But I also ask that you would heal any relationships that need to be healed, that our pursuit would be to be in harmony with you, to be in a space where we are in community with you, that we have set aside our shame that you paid for, and that we are submitting our lives to you. We thank you that even though things in the garden did not go the way that they were supposed to go, that you kicked Adam and Eve out so that you could send Jesus for us. And we get to celebrate this time of year because of Jesus' arrival and his eventual payment for our sins. We thank you that you didn't just leave us outside the garden. You didn't just forget about us. You didn't just start over. But you offered to us this gift of salvation. I pray if there's anybody that hasn't made that decision, that they would just have a conversation with somebody. What does that that mean to know Jesus, to follow him? That we could lead them in that space. But I ask that you would put on each of our hearts what we are called to do to restore the harmony in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name.